Hey guys, it's Derek. Uh, so this podcast is split into two parts. The first part is Rich Hoffman and myself talking about the NBA, some of the big news going around the NBA, the Kevin Durant injury, the Anthony Davis trade, uh, the Boston Celtics situation, things of that sort, how that impacts the Sixers, what we think will happen with Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, and what we think they should do in free agency. The second part of this week's episode, which starts at the hour and 20 minute mark, we bring Mike O'Connor on so we can get his thoughts on the on the NBA draft and what the Sixers should do with concentrating mostly on picks 24, 33, and 34. So once again, first hour and 20 minutes is more about the NBA. After that is about the NBA draft. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome everybody. We are back. It's a, it's been a month, a long, long month since we did our last podcast. But I'm here joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's, not this month. I, I promise we'll do another one this month. But this week's edition of the Sixers Beat. How you doing, Rich? What's a podcast, man? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we took a little podcation there when the season ended. We did our sort of like getting over the Sixers loss episode gave you a little bit of grieving material and then boom we were out we needed a needed a little bit of a break but we are we are back here we'll be back for the foreseeable future we apologize my vocal cords are very rested now (laughs) i I hope you all can tell i sound we have we have that that sexy rich hoffman voice back and we're all happy to have that back in our lives you you know who has the best talking voice by the way as john barchard yes that's exactly who i was gonna say his very jealous of his pipes all right, let's yeah, get into basketball. <laughs> well, I was going to say, the great thing when you're someone like me is you're used to being jealous of other people. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm very jealous of John, John Barchard's post. I mean, we kept his intro for years after what libertybroadcast.co. That website was gone for two years and we still kept his intro up just because he sounds so magnificent. But all right, moving on to basketball talk. It's been a while since we talked, so a lot has happened throughout the NBA, and a lot that has impacted the Sixers. So I guess we'll start off there, even though there is the NBA draft coming up. We have we're gonna have Mike uh, O'Connor on, our colleague from uh, from the Athletic. We're gonna have him on to talk about the draft since he he follows this stuff. Um, one of the things that I've I've always complained about are people who don't watch college basketball, don't watch international basketball, come in and try to be experts at the end. I will never claim that I'm going to be right. That's not how the NBA draft works. But what I could previously claim in the past was that I put in the work. I had not done so this year. I don't want to fake it. Um, so I'm going to bring an expert on to talk to you about that. So if Rich and I don't talk about the draft in this podcast, it's because we have Mike coming on when this is wrapped up. So starting off with the NBA, I, I guess we'll start off with the injuries. Yeah. First, first of all, I'm glad that we left a little bit of time in between when they happened and when we're talking about it. Because if, if we would have had a podcast like a day after, um, the, the Clay Thompson injury happened, I'd feel like an asshole talking about it. Uh, because when you start talking about the implications of it, you lose sight of how horrible of a time period that was. And that was one of the most devastating games five and game sixes that really you can imagine. I, I don't think there's ever been an instance where the entire league has flipped 
as a result of two games in the NBA Finals, like what happened there. But when you blow out an Achilles and you tear an ACL, those are both injuries that could keep, probably will keep, certainly in KD's case, him out for the entire 2019-20 season. And in, in Clay's case too, like it, depending on how that goes, you know, maybe he's coming back after the, 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 um, trade deadline after the all-star break. Maybe he's coming back right before the playoffs start, or maybe they're cautious with it and, and don't bring him back at all. And that, first of all, it's devastating because there's one thing you wanted and that was a well-played game six and that could have gone either way. And when it happened, what was it? Late third quarter, I think about two minutes left. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I just hope this doesn't, because it didn't really look that serious, right? Like he walked off, came back, shot the free throw. So he then could, you know, had the option at least of coming back. And you, I, I think it even, he even told Kerr at one point, like, Hey, I'm just taking a two minute break. Like I'm getting, getting a break in before this, um, before the change of quarters. And you're thinking like, okay, this like, that sucks, but it doesn't look too serious. And maybe best case scenario, it doesn't impact the result of this game. Then you find out after the game that torn ACL and she's like, man, I can't even like, I can't even appreciate. And I, I think Toronto deserved that series win. Like they played, I think they outplayed them. They played a, that's a tremendous story. And I hate that. I don't want to say there's an asterisk, but I hate there's something else to talk about besides the way they were able to win their first NBA championship. But there's real serious consequences to what happened during that series. And for the first time in a long time, it's not just default warriors like for the longest time it's been do you pick the warriors or do you pick the field and now that conversation is completely different yep those games i think in a few years we're gonna look back on those two games game five and game six of the finals as historic like i think the ripple effects are going to be just i think insane when you talk about katie's injury Clay's injury and, and just some of the moments from those games as well. Like, I think I'll always remember, even though they ended up losing the series, how the Warriors responded in game five and those threes that they made at the end of the game. And then the, the other thing I will always remember about the Warriors is that is what you were kind of talking about with Clay. That moment when Clay walked back on the court because I guess presumably he was told, uh, because it wasn't a flagrant foul, he needed to shoot the free throws or he couldn't right. come back at all. So he clearly thought he was coming back. And then not only that, for him to make the free throws as the crowd was going nuts and, uh, and then like run back on defense and be like, why are you intentionally fouling? Like, I, I want to play. And then, like you said, he told Curry, you know, I'll be back in a couple minutes. Like that is just, that's like some legendary shit, man. Um, but yeah, it's it's like you said, you, you do not want to right away say be the guy that says, "Oh man, I just just look at all all of the things that are going to happen around the league because of this." But I mean, really like it's like like you said, it went from the war the Warriors were so good, it almost felt unfair. They were inevitable to all of a sudden the place we are in right now, I think the league is more wide open than it's been in I don't know, a decade? I mean, I, I was trying to think how far back would you say? I mean, probably since LeBron started in Miami. Uh, I know Dallas won that first year, but I, I don't know. I felt like that was kind of the, I, I guess Boston had a super team before that, but for like two years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think quite to that, 
that level. They were no. obviously a great team, but those guys were a little bit older um, than these LeBron teams and the Warriors. Uh, it is, you know, as far as it how it affects the Sixers and it's how it kind of affects the, the whole league, next year's title, I shouldn't say this right away. You know, something weird could happen in free agency and there could just be a, a total super team that I didn't see coming, but I, I don't think that's going to happen, especially now with, with KD out for the year. It looks like, um, the championship this year is not like when you're a team like the Sixers or a team like Houston, who's has all this stuff going on right now, or, or Milwaukee, obviously who they can pretty much just bring their team back. It's not like, um, they're saying, well, if, if this breaks right and this breaks right and this breaks right, we have a chance to be a title team. Like, it, it doesn't seem like teams can get into that dangerous zone where, where they're almost fooling themselves. I, I really think there's like eight teams who can be like, yeah, I mean, if we just, <laughs> if, if we just bring this roster back with a, a, a few tweaks, we, we have a real chance to win the title. And it's, it's just something I haven't, we haven't seen in a while. No, it is, it is, it is more wide open than you've seen in a long time. And that will absolutely influence the decisions made by various teams. One of them, the team that you presumably root for if you're listening to this podcast. Um, and I think they were probably going to try to run it back anyway, but this certainly I think reinforces this year is, or this coming year, 2019, 20 is very important to them and they will act accordingly. So it's, I it's guess crazy. This- it's crazy how fast things change. They assembled these well, look stars. At, look at Boston. We'll get to Boston in a second, but look how quickly that entire situation changed. Unbelievable. The NBA, it's going to start happening, by the way, in like May or, or March. There, there's going to start to be actual free agency stuff. Like it's just getting earlier and earlier every year. It's crazy. It's June 18th. Um, but, but just like you were saying, you know, the Sixers and, and running it back, for so long, they assembled all of this star power, or, you know, sometimes we can be a little too liberal with, you know, superstar and star, but obviously an excellent starting lineup, an excellent top four that the Sixers have assembled. Um, and they, they were doing it to keep up with the super teams, with the Golden States. Uh, and now looking at it, they might be the only team to, to still have a so-called super team. It's just, it's just crazy. And I, I would not have predicted that even a couple weeks ago. Yep. One day we will learn that we cannot predict the NBA and the way it changes. Um, but we are not at that point yet as the Lakers have shown us, but we will get to that in a second. I guess one other thing on the, um, on the, the Warriors, I, I still think both, you know, I, both Clay and KD have player options. I still think they're going to opt out. I still think they both get max contracts. Like, I think Kevin Durant is a good enough player and ha- is difficult enough to acquire that somebody will still give him a four year max if he, if he, he does not take that player option. Um, well, I guess we'll start off there. We got, we asked for a mailbag. Um, one of the questions that came in from, uh, Wei Jin. Uh, at will sex for pizza on Twitter. And, um, <laughs> if you get some solicitations, I don't apologize because you submitted that question publicly knowing what your Twitter handle is. And what we do is we read off the person's Twitter handle. So maybe rethink your life choices on what you make your Twitter handle. Um, pizza's good, man. 
Pizza is good, but I would, I would set the bar a little higher on that one. Um, basically, would you, you know, knowing, would you gamble with Clay Thompson? Would you sign Clay Thompson to a max? And I guess we'll throw Kevin Durant in there too. Would you, if you're the Sixers, max KD or Clay Thompson? So I think with Clay, it, there becomes more of a question. Um, so, so I guess the first question to you, uh, cause, cause I know I, I've kind of been reading up on the, uh, on the rehab timelines between, uh, ACL tears and, uh, rupturing your Achilles. And, and I think most people tend to think that rupturing your Achilles is worse for your career, but I think, I think Kevin Pelton at ESPN kind of wrote that an ACL tear, it, at least, uh, getting back from it, can take about as long. So I, I do think like those might be a little closer than, than we make them out to be, even though I think you would much rather have, have the ACL tear. Um, I, I think with KD at, you know, how old is he? 30, 31. Uh, I think he 30. I, it, it would be, you know, it, again, we don't have his medical info, but, just, just in general, if he said 30, he wanted to yep. sign a max, if he wanted to sign a max contract here, I would do that. Now, so a max contract for him though, isn't that thirty-eight million? Thirty-eight. He's, yep. He said, yeah, he's at the ten years of experience, right? Yep. So, so you'd have I, to get rid of both Butler and Harris. Yeah, and then you'd have you'd have some money left over. Obviously, you'd have about twenty-two million left over. Right, it's, it's around the sixty uh, range. I'd have to, yeah, that sure. If you we'll go if with you that. renounce everyone, um, you you would have, I think, under a max, under another max, but yeah, about twenty two million. Yep. It's a it's a tough question, man. Like I, I think Kevin Durant, the the ability to have him even at ninety percent uh, or eighty five percent, that's still an awesome player, and. I still think there's a decent chance that's a better player than Jimmy Butler. Uh, in the next, a, a better in the next fit co- too, which is pretty crucial in the next couple of years. So I, I don't know. Um, cause you, cause you, if you do that, you, I think you kind of, you're not punting on next year, but you're certainly weakening your chances by a lot. Big time. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's kind of, of where I stand on that. Um, Obviously your salary cap situation's a little healthier moving forward. There's no, uh, there's no apron you have to worry about. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. And then with, with Clay, maybe you would get him back at the end of next year. I do not. He's obviously not as good as KD, but he's a spectacular fit. Uh, and you could probably say goodbye to Reddick too, because it's not only is he a good fit, he kind of replaces his skill set. So, Maybe acquiring other ta- talent around him um, would be easier. I I don't know. I, I guess I'm kind of talking myself into both of them now. Uh, but but here's the thing: I, I don't think the Sixers are going to do that. So I, I don't want to get. Well, I mean, the the bigger issue is I don't think either. Clay I don't think or they would. AD would. Yeah. Choose. I don't. Great point, Derek. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of the the lay of the land. It's a it's an interesting hypothetical though because you are kind of. You're punting for a year, but if you get good Kevin Durant back, I mean, him, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid, that's pretty scary. I would, 
and I've thought about this too much because like we said, it has almost no, no chance of being an actual factor on our job. So why, why am I sitting here thinking about these hypotheticals? But I would almost like pretty easily say yes to both. Um, with Clay, I mean, the ACL is just, that's a, a, an injury we're more comfortable with. One we're more comfortable with him coming back from. He's a year and a half younger than KD, a pretty decent less mileage on him. Like thinking of having him for a three year stretch is really tantalizing and just a great, arguably perfect fit with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and the way he can shoot, the way he can move without the ball, the way he can defend. He would just be like all these fit issues that we talk about with a non-shooting point guard and a post-up center and a pick and roll wing who doesn't really like shooting off the ball. That all goes away. Like he's just a fantastic fit. Yeah. Make everybody laugh too. Yeah, always important. But with KD, it's just it's it's on the one hand like there are some players. I was talking about this with uh Mike O'Connor, um, the other day, and it, there's some players like one of the draft prospects that we both kind of like is Legan Stort. But he's one of those guys that has sort of like a low margin. Like he goes the wrong way, he could not only be like a Lance Stevenson, but sort of like a, a Jonathan Simmons. And you never want to be like just a couple of bad breaks away from being a Jonathan Simmons. <laughs> So there are some some archetypes that just don't have a lot of margin for error. But with Kevin Durant, like you said, if he just comes back at 80% and look, Achilles are scary injuries. Like there's like there's not a great track record. Um they're, they're typically older this. players though. They're typical older players, a lot of big men in there. Ke- but Kevin Durant, if he comes back at 80%, he's still an incredible top 10 level player. And with his release point and his height and the way he can get his shots, I just, I don't, even if he loses a step or two, I still think he's going to be a really good player and an incredible fit. And like you said, you're sort of almost punting on next season. And that's not great, especially when you have a team that you feel like, a, a core that you feel like can contend. And you'd sort of have to get Embiid and Simmons buy off to pursue this route if you did. But yeah, you might be punting a little bit on next season. You're maximizing your odds for three seasons after that. And if you're giving me that core of an 80% Durant and Beaton is prime, Simmons in his prime, I'm willing to sacrifice that one. It's just such a rare opportunity to get somebody of that talent and of that fit. Um, that yeah, I would, I would, I would take that risk, but it doesn't matter because Sixers aren't going to get a chance for either of them. All right. You convinced me. Their, their skill sets are both going to age really well too. Shooting, man. Yes. Yeah. Really important. All right. More around the league. Um, the AD trade. You know, I think this is one that everybody saw coming for a long time. Um, and what, you know, Anthony Davis and Rich Paul getting their way and ending up in Los Angeles. And I don't think that's surprising. I think what is surprising though is how much the Pelicans were able to extract from the Lakers. Uh, because there just didn't seem like there were that many realistic suitors, especially with what seems like Kyrie Irving destined to leave from Boston. And you would think that that would uh, limit the Celtics interest a little bit. Um, because the whole point was a pair Irving and, and AD. Although I'm sure, I'm sure Danny Ainge is still interested, but it doesn't sound like he was willing to give up everything to make it happen. Uh, it sounds like Rich Paul's threats were, were a little bit effective in that regard. We'll hear what he was willing to give up. Oh, and uh, there's there's no doubt. Uh, there's no doubt. But I, I'm surprised. You know, basically, what was it? It was the number four pick. Um, first of all, Brandon Ingram, um, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart. 
number four pick this year. Was it two more first round picks or three more? It was, I mean, it's two more, but I think when people say two more, like the stipulations on it, on both of them were unbelievable. The, the first one is reverse protection. So if it's, I think it's 2021. If it's not in the top eight, then, then it goes to the next year unprotected. And then the second one is 2024. Uh, in 2025, it's one of those two when I think LeBron is 39 and 40. Uh, and the, the stipulation on that is you can defer it. They could just say no in 2024 and both of them would be unprotected. I, and then there's, by the way, there's just a pick swap in the, in between in 2023 that is also unprotected. So yeah, it's a lot of picks. It's basically picks between now and 2025. And, so I th- I think I think I think the Lakers should have been quote unquote all in on Anthony Davis. I'm going to use those in quotes because the problem is you eventually get to you're really all in on Anthony Davis, which this is. And look, I'm not a huge Brandon Ingram fan. Like I'm not I'm not buying stock in Brandon Ingram. I'm real. I'd be really worried about that contract he's about to get. Um, you know, I think this is the last year in his deal. Young players who can score 15 to 20 points per game, like. Their agents don't go into those negotiations thinking like, well, your VORP is low. Like, no, they negotiate based off of potential and, <laughs> and scoring potential. Like, young players who can score tend to get overpaid. Like, he's not getting an 8 to $10 million contract next summer. It's just not happening. Your on-off so splits really, are bad, Brandon. Well. Right. I'd be really terrified of of that next contract. I think he's practically negative value at this point, not because there's not some use in having a young player around that you can develop, but that you have to make that decision on him sooner than I would want to. And then Brandon Ingram, or, uh, um, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, who, I mean, everybody likes, but Josh Hart isn't a centerpiece of an Anthony Davis trade. But really, no, but me, you know, you, you know what he is though. He would have been a good player for the oh Lakers God. to keep around yes, on yes. making what a million or two. I, I don't know exactly. I what thought you were going to bring but, up the Sixers passing on him, which, Itself oh, well, yeah. I mean, he obviously would be good for the Sixers too, but just for the Lakers, like if you could have kept Josh Hart, which I mean, God, the only thing they kept was Kuzma. Yep. You know, it'd be nice if you could have negotiated. Ah, let's keep Josh Hart too. I mean, God. All right. Keep going. I, I said, I'll tell you, I do like Lonzo the best out of that crew. Yeah. I think yep. it, it, as much uh noise kind of surrounds that whole family. And obviously he, he needs to start making shots both from three and the free throw line. Uh, I, I still love his feel for the game and, and think there's a chance and his defense is really good. Too, yeah. And, so. and feel on both ends. And, and I think Drew and him will be a, an interesting backcourt, uh, certainly defensively. But really what this comes down to me is first of all, I think like they were largely bidding against themselves. And I think they gave up an asset or two extra just to get the deal done. Um, and I think that tends to happen when a GM like Palenka is under that kind of intense pressure. And also when you have a, a young GM who's never been a part of these negotiations, negotiations, at least on that side of the table, uh, running things. And it, it, it just screamed of inexperienced GM that's under a really strict, uh, a lot of pressure. And uh, where this comes down to, it's sort of like the uh, objections I had to the Tobias Harris trade when they happened is – Holy crap, are they locked in? Like, how are they going to surround that team with talent? And maybe, maybe you can tell me LeBron and AD are just so good 
that that doesn't matter over the next two to three years. And okay, I can, I can, I can sort of buy that. Um, I think the Warriors have shown that you need depth. And if you can convince me that Palinka and crew are so good at working the margins that they're going to find that depth, even with <laughs> limited resources, then I'd be not more on board. History's not great. But even more, what happens when, when LeBron James either leaves or just isn't an MVP candidate anymore? Like what happens when you have to build around AD and you don't know that you have your, your own draft pick until 2026? How are you going to make the trades to surround him in talent? How are you going to have the draft picks necessary to draft cost controlled contributors? How are you going to surround him with other superstars? Like people, one of the biggest mistakes I think we can make in analyzing the NBA is assuming that what is happening now is going to be the case going forward. We, a lot of times we just can't see beyond the tip of our nose. And we have very recent histories to suggest that just Anthony Davis alone isn't going to make you a contender. And by the way, that team had True Holiday. That team had other contributors, legitimate contributors, and still was not able to get Anthony Davis to the promised land. How are they going to get somebody as good as Drew Holiday when when LeBron James leaves? Like, how are they going to flesh out this roster? It's going to be very, very difficult. There's trades are going to be very limited. Draft picks are going to be very limited, and it's it's. I mean, look, I understand Anthony Davis, twenty six year old MVP candidate. I get it. You do you move heaven and earth to get him on your team. I get that, but I mean, if they could have just kept one or two or or, or even three more of these assets to have something, just something to pivot away from something to use as a trade chip. Like that's a massive deal because that's going to be tough for that team to, uh, to, 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 to add talent to. It really is. They have to win this year, basically. Yeah. And I mean, God, they have three guys on the team right now. I know. I know. They have three guys who are actual rotation players right now. And one of them's Kuzma. It's not Chris Bosh. <laughs> uh, right. like he's not as good as him. And LeBron's not, you know, 25 year old LeBron or whatever he was when, when he went to Miami. Uh, it's, I, I they gave up way too much. I, I mean, I, I think AD and LeBron are going to be pretty awesome together, by the way. Like I, I get it. Those two, they fit pretty well for, for two kind of big guys. If, you know, if they get into a playoff situation and LeBron decides to play defense again, I think they could be really good on that end of the floor. Just the idea of them running pick and roll together, you know, just these two giant human beings who are very skilled. I think it has a chance to be awesome, but they gave up so much stuff, man. And it's like you said, I don't understand how they're going to add talent three years down the line. They're just not going to have picks. And I mean, they're just going to have to be so good. They're going to have to be better than anybody in NBA history at the margins. And you know, like, look, we, we have one year of, uh, of evidence and I know Magic Johnson was all about getting tough guys and they were also under a kind of a one year, you know, timeline to where they were giving out one year contracts, but man, they were terrible last year. I brought in just a bunch of just players that made zero sense and, you know, it was, it was a thing too that everybody knew right away. Everybody was like, that's not going to work. And, <laughs> there was no second and, guessing. That was, yeah. And it's like, sometimes we say stuff like, you know, like they've, most people, you know, like NBA Twitter, they'll say stuff and sometimes we'll be wrong. Like that was one that everybody's like, wow, that this is crazy. Like this is, isn't going to work. And it was probably worse than we even thought. Uh, the other sticking point too, I know this has kind of been, 
push back on a little bit, but them not negotiating to push it back to July 30th is like crazy to me. So I, I, I guess if you're not kept up, um, think of what an additional four ish million if they had well, waited until the 30th. It's well, basically it would, the cost of the first round pick. It would be eight million if, uh, AD it, then it, waived his. Yes. If yeah. he, if he waived his, or I mean, they, they wouldn't need him to waive. Uh, yeah, if he if he waived it, um, they have because, about twenty seven million in cap room if the trade is executed on July first. They would have or t- what I what I said twenty three million in cap room. They yeah. have about twenty seven if AD waived his trade kicker, and which then would they be would ridicu- have which would be ridiculous, by the way. Yeah, and then they would they would be right around a max for a, a seven to nine guy um, if they had waited until July thirtieth to execute the trade. Uh, so that's actually the part, and, and like you said, totally absurd that this wasn't negotiated into it. Like, if you're going to give up the farm for Anthony Davis, at least negotiate in, hey, can we wait until the end of July so we can use our cap room? Like, like um, boo, boohoo, your player, your number four pick can't play summer league. Like, we're giving you so much stuff. Right. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like that is um, something they're trying to negotiate now. And that impacts the Sixers in a major way. Because one of the players that they had been rumored to be interested in was Jimmy Butler. Well, Jimmy Butler's not going there for $23 million a year. He's probably not going there for $27 million a year. $32 million, I'm, I, can, I'm still a little... They can get the 32 apparently, if they get if AD waives his contract, his trade bonus, and they can find takers for, like, Mo Wagner and... and right. But I think it's, like, literally just $32 million, and then you have three, like, only three guys on your roster. <laughs> right. Um... I'm not sure whether Butler would have would have wanted to go there. Like I'm like that's a, a sometimes playing with LeBron isn't the easiest thing in the world if you're not a spot up shooter. And and as we all know, uh Jimmy's not always the most willing spot up shooter in the world. Um so I'm not sure if that would have been something that he would have pursued anyway, but it certainly does. If they're only at twenty three million dollars, it takes a takes one of the major teams away as a, a potential threat to sign Jimmy Butler, so that, that is how that trade then impacts the Sixers. I'll say this too. Even if they do get to the 32 million, uh, or if they're able, you know, either way, if they're able to, uh, offload those guys' contracts or find a way to negotiate with New Orleans to, to push the date back, even if you have 32 million, if I'm the Lakers, I'm not maxing out Jimmy Butler as no, my, my third thing. Yeah. They need to spread that money around to a bunch of different players. Like I, and just try and win with LeBron and AD as your two stars. But I, I would say like maxing out, unless it's like Kawhi wanted to go there or, or somebody of that caliber. If you max out Jimmy or like Kemba Walker, I, to me, you're basically helping the Pelicans, uh, make those picks worse in a, in like three or four years. Because to me, that's a team that would just crumble. Every player they should be targeting. When you when you're you're assuming your entire offense is going to be based around a LeBron AD pick and roll, every player better be a damn good spot up shooter. Yes. And as good as Jimmy Butler is, and look, there just aren't that many two way wings on the market, especially when you then start adding in skill sets like creating your own shot, pick and roll play, passing things of that sort. Jimmy Butler is one of the most complete players on the market. He would not be a great fit for uh, for that team, and I, is, I I think he probably knows that too. He would be so much more useful to the Sixers than the Lakers. All right, moving on to the other hated 
if you're a Sixers fan, hated franchise, the Boston Celtics. Um, Kyrie Irving has apparently gone rogue. Like he's not returning communications reportedly, uh, from, from other people in the organization. I forget where I saw that, but Al Horford has, is not picking up his option. He will be a free agent. And I believe it was Shams who said that the Celtics are bracing for a future where neither one of them return. Oh, wow. You really just hate to see it, don't you, Rich? Hate to see it. I mean, this is wild, man. This was Bill Simmons predicting 67 wins last year. But, I, I mean, you know, we all make fun of him for that. I think you know, we're very much on record saying that they had a very bright future. Uh, I think, oh, for sure. And I think everybody else thought the same, too. Uh, and, I, I mean, could their last year have gone worse? No. No, it couldn't. Like, at least if somebody got hurt, they would have a legitimate excuse. No, it was just a chemistry catastrophe. Uh, it was Tatum kind of regressing a little bit, although I still think he's a, a very good player. Um just shouldn't talk to Kobe quite as much for sure. Uh, and now you have the situation where, yeah, if they don't have, uh, I don't know what their, their cap situation is exactly like. I'm sure they'll have, you know, so, somewhere between like 20 or 30 million, uh, if, if Horford leaves as well. But I, I mean, they're, they're looking at being a pretty mediocre team next year. Yeah, and look, I mean, obviously the Celtics made that run without Irving uh, when they beat the Sixers, but losing both of them. And Al Horford, I know there's Sixers fans who dislike him because he made the All-Star team and, like, all this stuff. He plays Embiid really, really tough. And even if he's not the player he used to be, he is such a smart player. He's such a good post defender, even though he's undersized. He's such a good shooter. He makes so many good decisions with the ball. He is crucial to them on both sides of the court. You can look at his on-off splits, and they are fantastic. He would be a massive loss for that franchise. And I wonder, I, I like, I wonder what happened. Like, what made them not the favorite to bring? Because first of all, him opting out is a little surprising. I think his salary is somewhere in the thirty million dollar range. I think it was thirty. Look, yeah. Like, I I get that he's probably looking more for years. Dollars, like I don't think I don't think anyone expects him to recoup thirty million this year, not quite. But you know, change, trade that in for a little bit of long term security. I get that, but that's a that's a big number to walk away from. But also, what just made it where Boston's not the favorite? Like that is a massive loss if it ends up being true. I think it, again, I haven't read all the reporting. We're kind of uh, we're recording about you know an hour, an hour and a half after this news broke, but. It just seems like they, they're kind of shortchanging them on the money, which is kind of su- surprising to me. I don't, I don't know what, what his demands are, but yeah, you would think something in the, I don't know, like the low twenties to mid twenties would get it done for two or three years. Uh, I, I don't know. He is, like you said, he is so damn good and just a lot of subtle ways. And I think not, not so subtly, like you said, he plays Embiid better than anybody. And it's funny. I was thinking about it. Who who do you think plays the, the two people who I have in mind who play Joel Embiid better than anybody are Al Horford and Marc Gasol, which, Marc Gasol of, yeah. which of course they're, uh, they found their way to the two teams in the division who were also good. Um, but I think Horford is even tougher than Gasol because of that pick and pop ability. And it's kind of, he kind of, 
he can kind of stretch him out a little bit further than Gasol, who's, you know, who can shoot the three, obviously, but is a little more plotting at this point. They both, he, they both, they both guard him very well, obviously. Horford op definitely stresses Embiid on the defensive end more. Like he, he, he can take, he can make Embiid, he can limit Embiid's defensive impact more than Gasol can. Because for as much as Embiid struggled offensively against the Raptors, he was still dominating defensively. That's part of why you saw such obscene on-off splits. The other reason being that the Six had no capable backup center, which we may have mentioned once or twice. Um, that, but yeah, no, he, he, I certainly, uh, Horford is a, a tougher cover with all he can do offensively and the way he can space and pass and, and whatnot. So yeah, that, that's the other thing too. Gasol didn't really take advantage of Tobias Harris in the post. Yeah, I think. He didn't want to shoot. Yep. Yeah, I think he didn't want to shoot. It's amazing. You're NBA champs, the team who didn't want to shoot. Um, but I, I do think Horford, yeah, probably puts more pressure. And now that opens up the question of where he goes now. Because, you know, I, I, I heard Milwaukee, I don't know, they're over the, the cap, right? Uh, but some yeah. people were throwing out Milwaukee as a possibility. That would be pretty scary. That would be a good, you know, a, a tough matchup for Joe and an already good team. I heard, um, Maybe the Clippers, he'd go with Kawhi. It's, it's important. If, uh, I'll just say this. If you can get him out west somewhere, that would be a win for the Sixers. Yeah, I don't entirely know how Milwaukee, uh, would fit in there. I guess maybe if you take away Middleton, take away Brogdon, take away Lopez. That's a lot of stuff. I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could certainly get in the $20 million range, but you, you'd be losing, you'd be losing quite a bit. You'd be losing some uh, very key contributors. Yeah. So anyway, if, you know, some people said maybe he goes to Brooklyn, <laughs> wouldn't that be funny if he just went with Irving to Brooklyn? Yeah. Uh, yep. and obviously that would be, you know, that would make them a, a much more formidable team if a little more combustible, combustible with Kyrie there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a big development for the Sixers because it, it certainly weakens Boston. Not also too, by the way, Boston, not a traditional free agent, like a major free agent destination. I guess they got Horford and, and Hayward and yep. back to back years, but you know, I, I don't think they've been rumored as like a Kawhi destination or anything. So. Nope. Yeah. All right. Last one. I we'll, we'll skip over Houston right now, even though there is that reported James Harden, Chris Paul drama, which was, I felt a little bit predictable. Like, Chris Paul is a very uh, unique personality, I guess, is the way I'd phrase it. Tough to live with on a day-in, day-out basis. Um, and James Harden seems like just about the opposite of that. And those two clashing both personality-wise and stylistically on the court was probably somewhat predictable, even if a little bit disappointing if you are a Rockets fan, uh, because that West is now fine. After losing to Golden State two years in a row, that West is now finally they- wide open and your stars are... Are, are reportedly clashing, so not great. They better figure that out because, yeah, they need to essentially run that team back because, like you said, the West is wide open, and I know people are kind of uh, – I see a lot of, you know, Chris Paul is it is super overrated, and I, I know he struggled a little bit last year, and his, his contract is pretty obscene, the amount of money he makes, but that team can be really damn good. I mean, they were the best team in the West the second half of this year, so – they need to very much figure that out because, yeah, I think they're right in that category with the Sixers where they can look at, you know, a path to a title and say, hey, man, we, you know, we, we don't have to do much to, to get there. 
All right, let's move on to, I guess, real quick before we get into the mailbag, just a gut feel on Jimmy and Tobias. I think we both agree that the Sixers are going to try to run them, run it back, but gut feel on whether or not they're, they're successful in doing so and who you feel maybe the most concerned might test the market and leave. I think for me, I'm, I'm pretty confident Jimmy's going to be back. I don't know. It just, it just seems like it again. This is not any, um, any not reporting. News. Yeah. 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 We're uh, pulling a windy here. Don't, don't source me on this. Yeah. Uh, it just, no, it, you know, aggregators just, just, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Are, uh, yeah. So I, I just like looking at how the season ended, it seemed like Jimmy ended on a good note. He obviously played very well in the playoffs. Uh, he, uh, he was given the ball as he likes. Um, and, you know, we kind of talked about this in our, uh, in our back and forth today at theathletic.com slash Philly. Subscribe if you haven't. Uh, that extra year to me is a huge deal for him because of his age, because of how it looks like he's going to age. It just seems like a lot of factors point to him staying here. Could be wrong, obviously, about that. But to me, it seems like Tobias has more optionality. As our old friend, uh, how about, Sam well, how about Elton, Elton Brand busted that out today? Uh, Vince Rosman, the scouting director also threw an optionality in there. It's, do you, uh, do you, re- do you remember when Hinky said that and like the tr- traditional media lost their minds? Like he's making up words and trying to sound super smart. And now you've got Elton Brand saying it and Vince Rosman saying it. I don't see anybody losing their mind that they say it. It kind of uh, goes well, back actually, to uh, actually we're uh, losing our we're losing well, our minds because we're, well, we're hearing the hypocrisy it from, of it. Yeah, hearing from it. Spread the uh, by the way that he said it the day after he traded uh, Michael Carter Williams, which yeah. was a very good trade. What were we talking about? Oh, Tobias. I don't remember. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, Tobias. I I think he will have more choices. Uh, I think he will have uh, you know. A, he can say to himself, if I take a four-year deal with another team, I'll get back on the market when I'm 31 or 32. I'm a good shooter. I've improved throughout my career. I have a chance to recoup a lot of that money at that point. And, you know, he basically has to ask himself, do, am I willing to sacrifice for the best chance at a championship? And the sacrifice likely wouldn't be money. It's more touches, it's more role, um, and, and taking a back seat at times. Uh, and, that, and that's kind of where I'm at with him. And I think, you know, just looking at how many teams are going to have a ton of cap space, um, he will draw interest. Cause I mean, he's like, you know, you look at the list, it's kind of the guys we already talked about. It's KD and Clay and, and Kawhi and these guys. And you don't have to go Kyrie and you don't have to go too far down to find Tobias. So he's the one that I am more concerned about. I think they still have a decent chance of running these guys back, but he, he's certainly the one I'm more concerned about. Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I wrote about it earlier today or on Tuesday since I will probably release this on Wednesday, but we wrote about this, you know, like you said, Jimmy turning down that fifth year at $43 million. Think about that for a second, $43 million. Um, considering his age, uh, you know, he would be, 33, 34 when that four-year contract ended if he took it with another team. Thinking he's going to get that 
at age 34 is probably unrealistic for him. Like it's just tough for tough to get a contract unless you're like Chris Paul. Tough to get a contract of that size at that age, and a lot can happen between now and then. So turning down that fifth year, turning down that guaranteed $43 million, especially if you like your role, if you like your teammates, if you feel like you can contend, then, I mean, Jimmy had a, a big role in the playoffs. Like, clearly, Brett Brown showed he would adapt. The Sixers showed that they would run a lot more offense through him. So turning that down, if, if especially if your role is good and you're happy with it, would be really tough. With Tobias, you know, he is 26 now. I think he'll be 27 when the season starts next year. So if he signs a four-year contract with another team, he'll still just be 30 years old when that contract ends. He could realistically go out there and negotiate another max contract. So if he turns down $43 million in that fifth year, he can realistically, because he would be a 10-year max guy during that next contract, um, you figure the cap's going to go up a little bit between now and then he could realistically make that that 43 million back up in that year and also he's now you know if he if he there there's an argument he made that since he has a chance to negotiate another max contract it's best to get to that free agent your next free agency in four years rather than five years you'll be younger yep stronger position of, of leverage of negotiating i just don't think that the Turning down for a, a guaranteed fifth year at forty three million is going to be as scary for somebody like Tobias Harris, especially if he's in the right role, than it is for someone like Jimmy Butler. And look, if he's if he feels like he's in the wrong role here in Philly or a diminished role, like maybe he sees himself averaging like fifteen points, sixteen points a game over the next four years, and that will hurt his next contract when he does become a free agent, where he could go to Brooklyn and maybe average twenty eight a, a game for four or five years straight, like he might feel like not only will he, could he recoup that fifth year, but he could also, you know, his next contract could be better elsewhere. And I'm not saying either of these guys are driven by money, but when you look at the Sixers, like the Sixers clearly acquired these guys, not only for making a run this year, but so they could have those bird rights with the extra year and the higher raises. Money that money advantages the Sixers have, I think, is a stronger pull for Butler, and I think that I think that Harris, especially, you know, we talk about the side effects of KD and Clay's injury, and like I said, I think they could build both still opt out um, and both still command max contracts. But what I don't think Kevin Durant can do as effectively as he could before is say go to New York and recruit another star to join him. Like I just don't think he's going to have the same amount of pull when the other person knows that he is likely to be out for the entire season. So I think, you know, Harris is only, is, is probably more sought after now than he was even back then. And I think he's going to have his suitors and, you know, we'll find out how concerned he might be about his role because I do worry a little bit about him. You know, I think he made the bigger sacrifice of the two. In terms of their role, you know, I think he had like an 18% usage rate in the playoffs. Tobias Harris is probably sitting there thinking, I'm not an 18% usage rate guy. Uh, and he's, he's right. He's not. That would be a big sacrifice for him to make. And again, I'm not saying he's not willing to. It just feels like Tobias is giving up the most to make this relationship happen. And because of that, I think he's the biggest threat to leave. They're going to try and bring him all back though. I, Certainly believe that. Uh, they've been telling us that for, for quite a while. Um, and I don't, don't think they've been BSing us. I think they will try to bring them back, but we will see. Um, all right. Let's go on to some questions. This is from 
Brick City. Oh, so I guess, I guess one more other piece of around the league news before we, we get to that. Milwaukee has made Ersan Ilyasova and Tony Snell available via trade, trying to shed some salary. Uh, you have, oh, hold on. I had these up. I lost it. Where'd it go? God damn it. I had Milwaukee's cap sheet up somewhere. I think he makes six mil. Am I right about that? Ursan? Yeah. I think Ursan's at seven. Seven, but the the next year's not guaranteed, right? After this year. That's a good question. Um, I don't know that. Um, and then Tony Snell's like 11 or 12. No Tony Snell. <laughs> no. But what I'm getting at with this is the reason that they are looking to do that, I think, I haven't seen it reported, but I'm just going off of their cap sheet numbers is right now if they – their only real way of bringing back Brook Lopez is to use the mid-level. But if they max Middleton and somebody comes close to maxing Brogdon, they might not have that full mid-level because using it would take them above uh, above the apron. Um, they're uh, Basically, if you slot in 32-7 for Middleton, you slot in 24 for Lopez, um, first-round pick money – They've still got charges for um, a couple of guys that they waived. They got some dead money on their cap, but you can get up to 138 million pretty quickly. And if basically, if the Brook Lopez signing, if the mid-level signing takes you above the apron, you can't use it. Uh, you only then have the taxpayer mid-level. So I think they're trying to clear a little bit of wiggle room so that they can retain both Middleton and Brogdon, and also still have the mid-level to use for Brook Lopez. So. That does sort of make me wonder because we've talked a lot about Brogdon and how he'd be a good fit. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure in the role that you would ask them, I'm not sure there's really that much, if any, of a downgrade from Tobias Harris to Malcolm Brogdon. I think Brogdon's a better defender. I think he has, you know, certainly more point guard skills. And while I think Harris can, you know, I think he largely makes the correct reads, there's not a whole lot of creativity in his passes. Like he's not a, a traditional pick and roll creator or drive drive and dish guy. I think me, there's aspects to me I, him as a him as a creator is he's at his best when he's in transition. Um, right. and the floor Correct. is opened up. He's pretty good at at being a grab and go guy. But right. yeah. And also I mean Brogan shot I think like 48% on catch and shoot threes last year. Now not at a high you'd want him at a higher volume like he still has a little bit of tendency where he wants to pump fake and drive and attack. But there are aspects to Brogan's game which I think might fit a little bit better as a fourth option. Um, and, you know, you'd lose a little bit in terms of maybe offensive firepower when Joel and or Ben are on the bench. Um, but I think there's basically an argument to be made is, is the way I would say. I have a lot of interest in Malcolm Brogdon, but the restricted free agency bit has always scared me off because if, if, if Milwaukee matches, you're screwed. You, you you essentially have your cap space tied up. First of all, you have to renounce guys because you actually have to have the cap space available to sign someone to an offer sheet. But not only that, you have to keep that cap space available. So your cap space is tied up until midday on July 8th. And by that time, a lot changes in NBA free agency. Your, your options diminish quickly, and that would scare the ever-living heck out of me. But if Milwaukee's not able to clear some salary and you can say, look, we offer Brogdon 24 million. They can't then bring back Book Lopez. That becomes a little bit more interesting. I'm still not sure I'd, I'd make that gamble. I think it probably becomes more like a, if Tobias leaves, then it becomes an option. 
But if they're that close to the apron, then that would be, um, you know, that, that that's something to monitor because I think that then, then does become a little bit more viable of a path. Like I said, probably more likely if Tobias Harris or Jimmy Butler go somewhere else in free agency. So that was the last bit of around the league news. Yeah, to me, signing Brogdon in, in Tobias's place, I, you'd lose some flexibility. Obviously, this year you'd have to renounce JJ and prime Mike Scott's rights, so your team probably wouldn't be as deep this year. But moving forward, the apron would not be as big of a threat. And yeah. you know, again, your your draft picks would be uh, would be a a big deal trying to hit on some of those late picks, but you would probably have the full mid-level next season once Ben becomes expensive, which would take you over the cap. So yeah, uh, it, it's, I, I can see the argument for that, but to me, I, I'm not, I'm not messing with that. Cause I, I really think they would match a pretty high offer for him. Cause I think they, they understand how good he is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it would, um, like I said, I think they're trying to clear some room. So they can match pretty much anything they get. Because like I said, the way I had it pegged, if they a twenty four million dollar offer thereabouts, maybe a million or two in either direction, would would make it a little bit difficult for them. Um so I think they're gonna try to clear some some headway there. So something to monitor, like I said, if for no other reason than a backup plan, if somebody, uh one of the Sixers prime free agents leaves. Alright. Now really going on to the mailbag. Um from Buki Mlaylock, uh, I am Davidson, uh, like the name. Shouldn't Patrick Beverly be a prime free agent target uh, if we don't re-up both Jimmy and Tobias? I think we wrote about that today. Yes. yes. He should be a – Love Pat Bev. He should be a uh, a target if they sign one of them as well. Yep. No, he would – I mean it, it's it's one of the ways that Ben Simmons gives you a lot of flexibility. And, you know, I think – Beverly was probably at his best alongside Harden Houston because Harden would create so much for that team and he could focus on spot up and, and defending his ass off. And he, I mean, he played well for the Clippers too. Don't get me wrong. But one of the flexibilities Ben gives you is that you can target like what you need from your, from your point guard spot, your quote unquote point guard is a lot of spot up shooting and a lot of defense. And there aren't many that do both of those as well as Patrick Beverly does. And if there's a Mike Scott hive, like that hive would be enormous <laughs> for Patrick Beverly. He would become a Philly favorite very quickly. I think he's still only like 30 or 31. So he's in his prime, but not yet out of it. He would just be a fantastic fit. And again, they would, I think if he played here for two seasons, they'd build a statue. For yes. Him. Yes. I think, I think it was you who said he's sort of like the personality of TJ McConnell and Mike Scott combined, which, which would be fun to watch in a guy who will pick up 94 feet. Um, and look, I think, uh, we've both said this and I sort of want to be clear about it. I think the best way for this team to contend for a title this year is to run it back. And a lot of that has to do with, well, first of all, they're really talented. And I think sometimes we can argue about their fit and a, the fit isn't the cleanest in the world. And I don't think it's magically going to be with another year between them, but there's a lot of talent and that can be difficult for teams on both ends. You know, you go back to that Danny Green quote. Um, where that was when they felt the most pressured, and and that makes sense. Nick Nurse was on uh Zach Lowe's podcast. I was just uh listening to it on my drive home today, and uh he said the same things. He said, you know, I, that that Philly series was tough. They were they were really good, and they were really talented. And yeah, I think to to add on to what you were saying, 
the um, the fit, those concerns won't magically go away. But having a full year instead of, you know, the, the trade happening in early February and Embiid missing at least half of those games, like like having a full season, hopefully, to tinker with, uh, you know, and, and figure the best way to, you know, deploy all of that talent. I think that that could make a, a pretty big difference as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna worry. I'm gonna worry about how Jimmy Butler ages and whether or not he, um, you know, is always happy with his role. I'm gonna worry about Tobias Harris and whether or not he's overpaid for what he brings and certainly what he's overpaid for the role that he will be providing. Um, and whether or not he will get the opportunity to really be worth, uh, worth the contract he's going to make. I'm a, I'm a warrior by nature. Um, and I will pick apart flaws. But this is a, an extremely talented group of four, five people if you include JJ. Uh, so running it back, I do think gives them the best chance to win next year. I think it improves their depth because as long as you're an over the cap team, you can bring back guys like JJ and Mike Scott easier. And I think that's going to be important. Like I think they need to add on top of that, not strip that down to then go out and be like, I think one of the big misconceptions is that if you, don't sign Tobias. You can go out there and replace that depth. And you really can't do that until you start renouncing people like JJ and Mike Scott, which then becomes a little bit counterproductive because then you need more, more contributors. Um, so it gets tricky. They're a little bit boxed in, but I do think running it back for 2019 20 is their best chance at winning a title. So someone like Patrick Beverly, when we talk about it, we are talking largely about a backup plan. Um, but it is one that, you know, if the, if we have to go to plan B, I'm not sure if he's exactly plan B. He might be, but he's certainly up towards the top of that list. Um, all right, which brings us to another potential plan B. From Brick City at Bricks42 on Twitter, uh, Brogdon has been mentioned as an option. We talked about that earlier. But if Harris or Butler don't come back, basically what about D'Angelo Russell as a backup plan? Because there's a lot of talk of the Nets moving on from Russell if they are able to land Kyrie Irving, and right now it seems like they are the favorites to sign Kyrie Irving. This has been brought up a lot recently. Um, I, I'm not the biggest D'Angelo Russell fan in the world, and I, I think part of the reason I'm not the biggest fan in the world of his is that I wonder I, – I have questions about him as a number one option, you know, kind of as we saw in that Sixers series, Simmons basically swallowed him up. They, they basically dared him to, uh, to beat them and, and he could not do it. Um, you know, you know, he's, he's, a, he has the ability to, uh, to put up points and he obviously improved this year. But in terms of like when you get into the playoffs against a good team, I don't think he's a number one option. And then my problem is if you have him as your fourth option on this team, it's some of the problems I have with Tobias in that. Well, he's not giving you good defense. He's giving you worse defense than Tobias. That's for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, is he, I mean, he can play off the ball. I don't know what he shot this year, but I think most of his value theoretically is being able to make plays in the pick and roll. And well, if Jimmy's back, well, that's, you know, I, you know, he'll get some pick and roll touches, but we just talked for about 10 minutes about the sacrifice that Tobias is going to have to make. So to me, I would, I would not go there. Um, because again, it's going to take, you know, is it going to take a max for him? You know, I know his max is a little bit less as a guy with, uh, with less than six years of experience, but I, I to me, I would, 
you know, if, uh, like, let's say if Jimmy stays around, I would, you know, try and pursue somebody like Pat Beverly, somebody like Garrett Temple, somebody, you know, like bringing back James Ennis, uh, as well, although that could be done maybe with a mid-level exception. But yeah, to me, I would be more looking for the, the three and D and especially the defense, uh, skill set. Yeah, there's always, this is said a lot, but there is only one ball. And I sort of dislike saying that because I think there's a lot of value in fielding a team with five good decision makers, five players who can handle the ball, uh, who have the ability to break guys down, who have the ability to see the game, read and react. Um, like I think, I don't think point guard skills are redundant, but I think you need to be effective off the ball. And I think you need to be able to defend. And yeah, can D'Angelo Russell make a spot-up shot? Sure. But I'm not sure that's his instinct all that much. I think he wants to be the pick-and-roll creator. I think he wants to be on the ball. I think he wants those step-back shots. I think he wants to look to attack and probe the defense, mostly as a passer. And he's an atrocious defender. Like, atrocious. Like, I, I get on I get on Tobias Harris for his defense. But he's a he's a significantly better tier or two above D'Angelo Russell as a defender. He's more and willing not, and he's bigger. Yeah, I mean it's And I'm just not I'm just not hundred percent sold on Russell anyway. Like even in the role that he played for the Nets, I'm not convinced that he won't come out next year and struggle way more than he did, did this year. Like I think he still takes a lot of really bad shots, makes a lot of really bad decisions, and more of them went in this year, and maybe that's a turning point in his career, or maybe it's just more of them went in this year, and we can get fooled by unsustainably hot, um, you know, a, 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 an up season, a career season. I don't know, and that doesn't mean he won't be able to replicate this. It's just I'm not willing to bet, you know, a hundred million reasons, the hundred million dollars that he'll be able to replicate this. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I would not be confident about that contract, and part of it's I'm just not in love with him. Like I do think good defenses will swallow him up. I don't think the Ben Simmons thing was an aberration. I think he has pretty pronounced strengths and weaknesses. And as we always say, when you get to the playoffs, teams can can really take advantage of those weaknesses. Um, I think he was targeted defensively a lot. And if he's not able to make those plays, I don't think he adds plus value all that much. Like I worry about him as a playoff contributor. I really do. Send him right. The uh, what, what was the thing I was thinking of? With, uh, what, what was I going to say? This is great radio here. Oh, with, uh, with the sudden news over the past week that Kyrie Irving is, uh, is leaning towards going to Brooklyn, which is kind of random to me. Uh, I, I didn't, that wasn't something that had kind of been reported all year. It seems like he's kind of made up his mind about that. It's, it's almost too bad because I was really curious to see what the Nets decision on Russell was going to be. But now they have, it, it's kind of already made for them in that Irving is a better version of D'Angelo Russell. But I, you know, I, I wonder, you know, a team that has the aspirations that, that they do, that they do still, um, you know, paying him a lot of money. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure if it would have, uh, been the best allocation of resources there. But again, you know, he was your all-star. Just letting him walk would be tough. Yep. No, they're, they're in a tough spot and Irving could, uh, could help bail them out for sure. All right. Uh, let's see. 
This one's also from Buki Mlaylock at I am Davidson. Were the Sixers ever in the race for to land Kawhi Leonard last summer? And if so, what prevented it from happening? We don't really have to speculate. It's been reported. The um, Spurs asked for Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid in return, and the Sixers said no. So, yeah, I think the Sixers were interested. I don't think they were interested in paying that price. And now it's real easy to look at the Raptors winning the championship and bemoaning how big of a mistake that was. And look, if Kawhi was going to sign long-term, would I trade Ben Simmons for him? Yeah, I would. Even with the injury concerns he had last year. Like he was, he was in, I had him, I picked him as the MVP of the year uh, Westbrook won it. I thought he was that level of a player. And getting an MVP caliber player who, who by the way, was what, like 25 last year at the time of the trade? Like, yeah, if he's going to stick around long term, I, I would have given up Ben Simmons for that. But I, I think we need to acknowledge for one second how much it was like a foregone conclusion that he was going to LA this summer. And he still might, by the way. He still like might. He has, that would, that would has, absolutely validate it too. They want a title and he might bounce. Right. So like what, uh, like what'd you have to do to impress him? Like it was it always just preordained that he was going to Los Angeles and would you give up Ben Simmons for a title? Like, maybe, but that's one year. Like, it's one year. I would um, I would give up Ben Simmons if you could guarantee me a right, title. Right, but you couldn't. Uh, but imagine, that doesn't that doesn't exist. <laughs> right, and even even thinking about this Raptors season, like they're one bounce away in a five minute overtime from losing in a second round and losing Kawhi. And look for them in their spot after how many years of coming up short. Giving up DeMar DeRozan was worth that risk. But if what if the Sixers would have given up Ben Simmons and you lose in the second round and he bounces to Los Angeles? That would have been a disaster. And it's really easy to look at, at the way that they won a title now and think that was just like fate because they had the best player in the playoffs. But like I said, they were minutes away from losing in the second round. It would have been a – you. Look, I understand we're going to play the what-if game, but like that's – that you can't make that trade without a commitment. You just can't do it. And I, I, again, I thought, I thought Kawhi was an MVP before he, he ever got to Toronto. So like, how, did he play better in the playoffs than, than I expected? Sure. But I was real high on Kawhi. It's just, it, nothing is guaranteed. The Raptors winning a title weren't, wasn't guaranteed. The Sixers winning a title, if they would have traded for Kawhi, wasn't guaranteed. Um, Kawhi could have gotten hurt and Bede could have gotten hurt. Like a lot could have gone wrong where now you're just left with Ben or Joel and Bede and a whole bunch of what ifs. Yeah, his his health was a massive question mark coming yep. into the season. If uh, we just need to remember, yep. And I agree, DeRose. You give up DeRozan, that's not that hard. But Ben Simmons on his rookie contract is a different story. All right, uh, from at Colin Alex Hanna, in a run it back scenario, how important will it be for Ben Simmons to accept and develop his non point guard off ball offensive game? How realistic is it? And I'll amend it. We're obviously talking about the jump shot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very important. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it's important no matter what happens. Like even if, even if Jimmy Butler walks, even if Tobias Harris walks, it's still really important because guess what? They're going to need somebody to be a half court initiator. Like they drafted Markel Fultz to be that when Markel Fultz was obviously not going to be that they traded for Jimmy Butler. Like they want, there's the best versions of this team will always have a guard. And we'll call Jimmy Butler guard in this instance. We'll always have a guard who can create off the dribble. We'll always have a guard who can play in the pick and roll. Like I watch Anthony Davis 
And that's sort of what I dream Joel Embiid becoming in that pick and roll threat. And Davis is one of the best in the NBA at it. So maybe you don't think Joel's going to get there, but they need to get Joel better as a pick and roll dive man. Because that's a way for him to get efficient offense. And right now you can see in the playoffs, and yeah, Joel wasn't 100% physically. He wasn't 100% in terms of, of, of being sick. It was a really tough matchup in Marcus Sol. But you can defend a post player and you can make his life tough, especially a really smart team like Toronto. You need to find a way to get your best player easy buckets. And Joel developing into that is something that matters. Like you need someone whose skill set can help him get from where he is, which quite frankly isn't a very good pick and pick and dive player, to becoming a really good one. You're always going to want to pair him with someone who can do that, which is always going to mean Ben Simmons being off the ball because Ben Simmons can't be that, at least not right now. This jump shot thing is not just like a, he needs this to fit with Jimmy Butler. He needs this to fit in the modern NBA. He needs this to fit with Joel Embiid. And it's, it's crucially important. It really is. Yep. Couldn't have said it better. Where are we at? Um, actually I mis, mis, misquoted that. Um, earlier the one about Clay Thompson was, was also from Buki Maylock. This is from Will Sex for Pizza. Uh, so we got to say that Twitter <laughs> handle twice now. Should the Sixers be interested in Rondé Hollis Jefferson now that he is an unrestricted free agent? I like the player. Uh, Love him. He is from the area too. I actually, cool story. I, uh, w- one of my first jobs in journalism, I got, I got an assignment for the, for the Philadelphia Daily News, a freelance assignment to write a story about the Chester High basketball team in 2012, 2011, they were like the number five team in the country. And I spent a little time with their best player, Rondé Hollis Jefferson. Um, I love the player. I think he's going to be, you know, a good option, like for, you know, for the price that he's probably going to get. He's probably not going to get a ton of money. He, uh, the, the Nets turned around a lot of games, especially in the second half of the year, playing him at center, just kind of these goofy, goofy lineups. I, I guess the, the big problem with him though is that the one skill that he is lacking is the one that the Sixers need the most. He to me feels like a better option on a team like Portland or, you know, Brooklyn last year had some pretty good shooting. Just, it just feels like playing him with this group of Sixers is, it's a tough sell. And I, I love his defense, love his toughness. Um, but I do not love the fit with this group. He made nine three-pointers last year, Rich. Nine. This is a team where every player outside of Joel, Ben, and Jimmy, they need to be able to shoot. They need to. Like This team already runs into so many spacing concerns. Because they're three main guys, they're three offensive focal points, one of them is willing to shoot, but really can't from three right now in Joel. You, you need him more, better than 30%. The other one sort of can shoot in Jimmy Butler, but won't. But only when it's in transition and he's right. off the dribble. <laughs> and then Ben, who we all, we, we all just know. And those are your three offensive focal points. And whether it's an Embiid post up, a Simmons post up, a Butler pick and roll, like you need spacing around that. And with the way the Sixers stagger, you're always going to have him beat or Simmons on the court. Almost always. 
And you're right. I love Rondé Hollis Jefferson. Like in what the NBA is going to in terms of switchable athletes defensively, he fits that to a T. He's good people, as the Sixers love to say. Like he's going to work hard. He just can't shoot. And that's a really – like if he signed for like mid-level money, like room mid-level or non-taxpayer – not even non-taxpayer, but like if – one of the lower exceptions, sure. Like, what if it's an obvious underpay? Yeah, you'd take them and you'd find a way to make it work. But the Sixers just don't have that many resources. Like, if you, if, if you're talking about having the entire non-taxpayer mid-level, like, I just feel like there are bigger needs for the Sixers to have outside of that. And by the way, there's probably a team that should be willing to pay Rondé more than the Sixers will because they're a better, cleaner fit for him anyway. So I, I don't see it being a fit. But I wish it was. I, I I do wish it was because I would like him, like him a lot. And he's the right age, by the way, too, like twenty four years old. Um, it's just that's a that's a weakness, which is real tough. Unless you're talking about a draft prospect, who maybe you can coach him up, and he's on a rookie deal and all that stuff. But like, if you're talking about a significant resource, and I consider a non taxpayer mid level a significant resource, because the Sixers won't have that many that they can sign to that before they start hitting the apron in future years, then it would be a real tough sell. I hope Rondé goes to the Spurs. Yes. Chip England. Yep. And that, and that'll be a max player by the time he's 28. <laughs> um, all right. We're getting pretty long into this podcast. I didn't, didn't realize we're well over an hour. So we should probably start wrapping this up, especially if I'm going to tack on Mike's bit at the end. I guess I have one question, a mailbag question for me. I got that. I got asked this on to Ricky and I've been thinking about it. What do you prefer covering more? Do you prefer covering the process years or the playoff years? Just as a, as as a reporter. Um, the, the the playoff years for sure, but I, I think that's mainly because those uh those process years covering the team day in and day out. It's a long season when you're losing all those games, man. And I get it, like this season felt like, you know, it's the Brett Brown, it was three seasons, but it was exciting. And as much as I think a lot of people say, oh man, I loved watching him during those process years. They worked hard and oh, no. they, uh, it's like, I mean, like I, I just watched like so many Ish Smith pick and rolls and just bad shooters and bad players. And you just like, I say it all the time, like you would show up at the, at the arena and be like, Oh my God, they have no chance to win the night. Um, so, so I enjoy that. Uh, I, I enjoy like having a winning or even a competitive team more than that. Um, and around this time of the year, I, I think it was a little more exciting to cover the, uh, the process years though, because a, you know, there were, there were, there was a top draft pick almost every year. So there was kind of intrigue on who the Sixers were going to pick. Um, the, the late first rounders and the second rounders had a chance of actually playing, you know, at least at the beginning. There was like that Jeremy Grant and KJ McDaniels here. Yeah. Yeah. K- KJ would have been a starter on those teams. Yeah. And it was, you know, it, like, look, I, I think it's cool. Um, when the, the Ricky had their, uh, their, fly the process, uh, trip to Minnesota, you know, after it was over, I was, you know, as part of the story, I was just kind of shooting the shit there with, uh, Covington and, 
you know, like it just is like somebody to, to have seen him kind of grow into an NBA player is cool. And it's, it's cool now for me to be able to be like, yeah, I, I saw you when nobody knew who you were and you were jacking 30 footers and losing by 20. And now you, you know, you're a very established and good NBA player. Um, but yeah, I think I, I do, I do prefer this more. Uh, but I do think it's cool that we can say that we have we were there for the entire process. It it makes this more fulfilling, I will say. Yeah, so that that's pretty much the answer I gave on the Ricky uh, was that I prefer as much as I enjoyed the process that covering this these teams is more exciting. It's easier to do your job. There's more to write about. But I will say, like, I got into this sort of by accident. Mostly because I enjoyed arguing about team building online. And eventually somehow I started writing about team building online and then getting paid to write about team building online, um, originally from the draft. But, and, you know, the process was maybe the best you could hope for from that perspective. Like we were constant debates about team building and what really mattered. And, you know, what was the best route to go and, and, and what, what progress really meant. And just in those years, I think that, I think I might change my answer. I think I might have enjoyed covering team building, that phase of team building as much as anything. And it was such a unique time period and the debates were so constant and so, um, you know, so there's so much venom on both sides. That it was fun to be a part of. Like, there might not ever be a team building argument that will match that. And I'm very happy to have been a part of that. But I will say, as much as maybe I enjoyed covering that era, watching you today on Twitter go after that Cavs Anita guy, there was a shelf life on that. I couldn't, I couldn't debate the process for eight years. I I know a lot of people want to say that it took eight years of tanking. But I couldn't actually debate that for ages. Like I saw you going back and forth about it. I actually sent off one tweet and I I deleted it. And I don't like deleting tweets, but it's like I'm not getting roped into this. I'm just not getting roped into the same argument we because get, all of the arguments are so tired and we used so to get into oh, so many of those arguments. It was crazy, and it was like I think, like you said, it was it was fun. Um, but like I think part of the reason that the other side found it fun because. Nobody could – I mean they, they would just be like, let's – tell me when it works. And now, you know, it's like the same people being like, it didn't work. And it's just like – it's – I think a lot of us who got in those arguments, at least the people who were on the right side, that the process was a good thing, I, I think have kind of moved away from like – we're done arguing about it. Uh And yeah, I think it's like you said. If the team is going to be bad and you need to write about – team building and and the draft and kind of ha- how to allocate your money in free agency and maybe planning, you know, long-term planning. The Sixers in those years gave you the most interesting case of yes. that. So that was good. But I think just in general for my answer, like, you know, I think anybody who reads my writing, it's more X's and O's centric and stuff that happens on the court. Um, so I'll take yeah, now, but it was always – there's good to both, um, but I it's think I will always team. have. It's been a yes. fun team to cover, man. Like you know, regardless of what's going on. Yeah, I just I I know I will always have sort of like a team building slant to to my coverage. I really enjoy the draft. I really enjoy 
analytics. I really enjoy the CBA and I always want to like that. That's always going to be an interest. Um, and that will be the most interesting team building period that I will cover. But like I said, I think that had a shelf life because blaming Maury for anything <laughs> that goes wrong with the Rockets and using that as a referendum on analytics is just, I mean, you, you brought it up perfectly. Uh, and, and I guess basically just kind of paint the picture and then we'll cut this off. But somebody on Twitter said that the what's going on with Chris Paul and Harden is proof that analytics guys miss things, basically. And you're like, well, when Boston brings Kyrie Irving in, he blows up that locker room. Nobody goes, well, Danny Ainge, damn analytics. Like it's 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 whenever something goes wrong with Houston. Remember like a couple of years ago. Maury was sort of kind of on the hot seat and it was another referendum on, on tanking. And then he went out and he, or not on tanking on chemistry. analytics and then in chemistry and ignoring that. And then he went out and he got, you know, Chris Paul and they took the Warriors almost won that series before that injury. And then everyone shut up and did, did he win executive of the year? I forget, but like, you know, everyone shuts up for a minute and now he's struggling again and they bring up analytics and it's proof that an analytics man has no heart. I'm glad we don't have to have this debate all the time. Yep. Sam Hinkie was not a robot, people. He was not a know. robot. That's, that's the point. Um, neither is Daryl Morey. Neither is any other person who might want to collect data to help with their decision making. And with that, we will cut it off. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on. And we will talk to you soon. And I swear to God, I do actually mean we will talk to you soon again. See you, man. All right, and now let's head over to Mike for some NBA draft talk. All right, I'm now joined by Mike O'Connor, our colleague over at the Athletic Philadelphia, and also does work for EV Hoops, a scouting service, um, evhoops.com. How you doing, Mike? Doing okay, man. It's been a uh, it's been a crazy start to July, huh? All this, uh, ha- all these well, June. Rumors. It would be That's a crazy I mean. start to July, but we, it's also a crazy start to June. Um, yeah, you've got, I mean, you've obviously got the AD trade. You've got, um, Boston looks like it's in shambles. Uh, and then you have the Sixers who have two of their primary four players, three, really three of their top five players. Heck, you can go to four of their top six if you include Mike Scott, who are about to become free agents. I think we might have to stop. No. How far deep can you go? I guess next you would go. James Ennis, so five of their top seven. Boban is your eighth. All right, so six of your top eight. You got pretty much everyone except for Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons set to become a free agent. Uh, so there is a lot of tor- turmoil to be had. But before we get to that, we have to talk about the NBA draft. And it's a weird year. There is less juice about this draft than I can remember in quite some time. A lot of that, the way I put it in, in my article today is that it's real easy to dream about the Joel Embiid's of the world when you're watching the Michael Carter Williams. So it makes sense that we are a little less focused on the draft now than we were back in 2014 or 2015. It's of a, of less consequence. It's less, cru- less crucial to the relevancy of the basketball team, but it is still very crucial to fleshing out the roster of a, of an NBA champion. And whether that's a, a star level player like Draymond Green or a Fred Van Vliet or a Danny Green or someone of that ilk, like those players are very, Pascal Siakam was a 27th pick in the draft, uh, two spots after 
Anhei Spasechniks, which we won't mention anymore, I promise. Uh, that's a tough one to swallow. But those kinds of players make a huge difference in the games that we just saw at the highest level. So hitting on some of these draft picks, and the Sixers have five of them coming into Thursday night's draft, will be key for Elton Brand and his team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had a piece about it the other day, um, and it's just like that. These are like the lifeblood. This is how you keep great teams going. Like, whether it's the Spurs or like, you look at like the Warriors, like, in the finals, they, they just didn't have enough guys. And, you know, the way that they could have gotten those guys is through late first round picks. And the only, the only one that worked out was Kevon Looney, and he was absolutely crucial to their team. Um, I mean, this is just, like I said, this is just how you keep good teams going is by nailing these picks late in the draft. And, um, it's been a mixed bag for them of late. I'm not going to say it's been a total failure because Landry Shamit was, was a bullseye. That was a really good, uh, hit in that range. But, uh, everything before that was not so great. Yeah. Landry, um, we hope Zaire, maybe even Shake Milton, who we saw today in the gym. They seemed like they started to turn it around a little bit here last year. And look, late first, early second is tough. Sam Hankey doesn't exactly have the greatest track record there either. Um, you know, a couple of Jeremy Grant, I would say, is a hit. Maybe a couple more interesting guys in, um, you know, Rashawn Holmes. Um, but by and large, not a whole ton of track record there either. Their, their success more came with the undrafted guys in TJ and Covington. So it's, it's, it's tough. But the Sixers have a lot of opportunity. You know, I think they had, what, four second-round picks last year, or at least they came into the draft with four second-round picks. They have four this year. I believe I looked it up. They will have had 17 picks in the 20s or later over a four-year stretch. And they have to hit on a couple of these here if they want to be able to flesh out a roster that's so top-heavy in in salary, like the Sixers hopefully will be when July ends. So I wanted to have you on. You know, I think one of the one of the things that used to bother me, I guess if there's a new listener, um, you know, I covered the draft for a long time. First draft I went to and covered was 2009. And I worked with Draft Express right up through 2017 when they were absorbed by ESPN, and then I went to The Athletic. Um, so I covered the draft during that time, and one of the things that used to drive me insane is what I'd call helicopter draft analysts, guys who would ignore the draft all season long, ignore, ignore college basketball, certainly ignore EuroLeague and European and foreign basketball, and then come in with strong opinions and present themselves as ex- experts. Uh, and this year, because of covering the Sixers, I haven't been able to put the time in. And I think the draft, especially after you get outside of the top five, it's really about um, we're all going to be wrong. The only thing I could promise you before was that I'd put the time in. So rather than fake it this year, I wanted to have you on uh, because you've been working with EV Hoops and watching this stuff that uh, I have not had a chance to do. So like I said, rather than I think the most important thing we can do as analysts is know when we're ignorant. So I will know that I'm ignorant and cede much of this discussion to you. So let's get started. Fair enough. That, that's, why, that's why I like, you know, I was going to say that's why I like working with uh, Evie Hoops. It forces me, to, forces me to stay on the draft every year because I, I do the exact same thing if I wasn't doing this. I would just, you know, like you said, be a helicopter guy. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to be – it kills me. I love the draft. Um, I really do find it fascinating. I do miss it. But – Back to the topic. Sixers have five picks, but they have 24, 33, 34, 42, and 54. Is that correct? Sounds correct. Sounds right to me. I'm going off the top of my head, but I'm certainly the 24, 33, and 34. They would have 31. They traded that for Trevor Booker. Um, oops. <laughs> but still, they have plenty of opportunity here. Now, so we're going to focus today on the 
24, 33, and 34. So I guess we'll start off. What what do you think this team needs? What kind of player do they need? What kind of position? What kind of skill sets? What would you be targeting if you were the Philadelphia 76ers? Um, not one thing specifically because it's it's hard to say because we have no idea what this team will look like next year. But I mean, you're just looking for guys that can contribute immediately and who know like who they are. Um, like one of the things I wrote about yesterday in my piece was um, like Kevin Porter Jr. is falling in the draft, and he's a guy who has like. Definitely top 10 upside and is just an unbelievable self-creator, has every setup move in the book, um, has a lot of character questions, that's why he's falling. And I really don't think he's a guy the Sixers should target because he's going to be a project and he's going to be someone who I think would be best off if you could basically hand him the keys to your offense um, and really just like let him develop, work out the kinks. And I don't think that's a guy that the Sixers should be taking at 24 or anywhere, really. I think they should just be looking for low-maintenance guys who are more so like a sure thing and who you know are going to contribute in one way or another. Um, and I think there are plenty of guys like that in this range. Like, I just look at a guy like Cam Johnson, who you just know for a fact, like, he's the best shooter in this draft, and he, you know for a fact he's going to be able to contribute in year one. Um, shooting is at such a premium in the NBA, I think that, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about in terms of the draft is just, I just think we undervalue shooting and we overestimate how much shooting there is in the league. Like teams like Portland or OKC haven't been able to find shooters or Memphis for many years, haven't been able to find shooters for periods of five to seven years. Right. And I just think like, if you look at this draft one through 30, you just look at all these guys and think, how many of these guys am I confident are going to be above average shooters in the league? It's like maybe five of them. And, you know, guys who have been sleepers in the past, like a Shamit or a Kevin Herter, are guys that are lights-out shooters and get to the league and can contribute immediately. Um, and I think, you know, that's a reason I would be targeting a guy like Cam Johnson. So that actually, I, I got a whole bunch of mailbag questions uh, because I'm both writing a mailbag and doing a mailbag podcast with Rich. And one of the questions was from Michael Goldpine at mgoldpine on Twitter. And his question was basically, given the lack of shooters, do you target one of those at 24 and hope that a wing defender falls to 33 and 34? Just because, like you said, there might only be five of them in the draft. Cam Johnson, probably certainly the best one. He's, what, I think 23. So you would assume probably ready to contribute relatively quickly. If he was there at 24, would you go that route and then hope one of the wing defenders falls? Or would you just take BPA? Probably. I I don't know. I mean, I think there are guys who are certainly close to him. I mean, um, a guy like Matisse Stiebel I really like as well. And, you know, if you're the Sixers and you feel, I think, like, you know, one of the things to consider, Cam Johnson has had a really messy uh, bill of health in his past, you know, his entire college career, really. Um, so if you if you think that, you know, knocks him down a peg and you really like Tybel's defense or anybody's defense, I'm not just saying Tybel, but... Um, you know, that's what I mean. And, and like I said, it's, it's tempting to go best player available guys like Kevin Porter or just go with the guy th- with the most upside. But I think when you're a team like the Sixers and you're in a, in a position to contend and you just need contributors in one way or another, you probably want to go the safer route. All right. So let's go to the, I guess other shooters, other perimeter shooters that you think would make sense in the 24 to 34 range. Who are they and what do you like about their game? Other shooters, you said? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, a guy like Eric Pascal has really improved as a shooter. Um, I'm a little bit lower on him than some. Um, I just think that a lot of people want him to be this like crazy versatile defender who flies around and and can just defend all these positions like a Draymond or something like that. And that's just not who he is. It's not in his DNA. He's been a scorer. He's been a score first guy dating back to high school. Um, so I'm a little bit lower on him than most. I do think he could contribute. Um, but I'm, I'm just not in love with the guy. Um, other guys like Tyler Hero, it doesn't look like he'll be available, uh, when the Sixers pick. Honestly, I'm not very high on him either. Um, I really question, like, what is he better at than Nick Stauskas? I really think that's just who he is. Um, he has a wingspan that's shorter than his height, which is an extremely rare thing that to succeed with in the NBA. Um, I think, I think JJ has it. I think JJ qualifies for that, but JJ he, he, is not also not the defender you would want to point to. Absolutely, absolutely. I, and JJ, I actually, JJ is probably closer to the higher end of a defender given his physical tools. Like, there's a lot lower ground to get to than just JJ. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Um, I had somebody tell me that uh, somebody tell me they looked up every player in like documented NBA history who has a wingspan shorter than. Uh, their height and a- anyone that was, that stuck around in the league at all, it was either JJ Redick or guys who were like around seven feet and didn't need to have a wingspan right. longer than their height. It's just like, it's basically unheard of. Um, not to say that means he, he's a complete bust or anything like that. I'm just not especially high on him. Um, in terms of other shooters, I mean, man, there really aren't that many. Everybody else in this range has a pretty questionable jump shot. I mean, I guess Ty Jerome, uh, is someone you would point to not especially high on his game either. I do think he'll stick around. Um, might just be like a, a Grievous Vasquez sort of. Um, and just kind of like, you know, I could see him just being a seventh man on a team for, uh, for several years. Um, not crazy about him either. Of, of all the shooters, I think I would go with Cam Johnson ahead of the rest of them. One guy who's, who's been brought up a lot and I believe worked out for the Sixers, Carson Edwards. Six foot point guardish, big time scorer, Purdue. Mocked a lot of times in that, that late first round range. Thoughts on him and whether or not he would fit. I like Carson Edwards. Um, I think relative to, uh, national consensus, I'm, um, a little bit ahead of consensus. Like, I, I like him. Um, I would be happier, you know, with him in the early second. I don't think he's a guy you should take at 24. Um, it just scares me a little bit that I think at the combine, he measured like just under 5'11 without shoes, and that's just a little scary to me. Um, yeah. does have a 6'6 wingspan, really can make some plays on the defensive end. Like, I think he's underrated, uh, on that end. The one thing I question with him, like, everybody that's under six foot that really succeeds in the league is like, has just crazy setup really moves, strong. and yep. yeah, he's, he's super strong, built like a running back. Um, but, you know, Carson, is a very, very good athlete. He's not like Isaiah Thomas. Like Isaiah Thomas is 5'9 and can dunk with two hands. Like, I mean, he's ridiculous. Um, I don't think Carson is quite there. I do think he'll stick around in the league, but he might just be um, a much better version of Isaiah Cannon. Yeah, I, again, I don't think that's the comp I would I would want to hear. <laughs> Certainly, I think there are at least more 3 and D wings to run me off of Isaiah Cannon. Uh, so let's get to that group. 3 and D wings. Whole bunch of options here. Uh, you already mentioned Thibault. 
but and then you've got you've got Dort, you've got Shimo Keiki, uh, you've got a whole bunch of others in that range. Who do you like? Um, would this be a group that you would target from, or, or, or again, it seems like there's enough of these where some, one or two of these might fall from 233 or 34. And do you then, I guess, are they close enough where you would be willing to let them fall and take whoever's left later in that, or early in that second round? Yeah. Um, well, within that, I mean, just one quick point about like, the draft in general. Um, I think that, like, I've seen this mocked so many different ways. I, I just think, you're going to see a bunch of surprises in this range. I think there are a lot of guys um, who I like and, and just who are pretty even. Like, it, it was hard for me to go through and rank guys, like, 22 through 35. I mean, there's just – I think it's pretty even there. And in that sense, I actually think this is a pretty good draft for that range specifically. Like, I think this draft 4 through 14 is horrendous. But 14 through, like, 35, it's actually not that bad. Um, and I think there will be a lot of contributors there. So, you know, guys like the, the, the three and D guys, can't call him a three and D guy yet, but Lugan Stewart, I do really like just like what he brings, just a bulldog, just an absolute bulldozer. Um, he might just have just too, too many kinks in his game. I mean, just like the shot is an absolute moon ball. Um, I would never feel comfortable betting on that. Um, feel for the game is not his strong suit, but I mean, man, that guy just defends his butt off. Um, I think he's the best one-on-one guard defender in this draft. Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody about this, uh, for, for him, like on the Sixers specifically. And they said, you know, I, I feel like he overlaps with Zaire Smith too much. And I said, yeah, but like, think about how it would look if both of them, you know, figure out their jump shots and hit their upside. That would just be like such a menacing defensive duo off the bench. Um, I think they could be really, really good. Um, and then other guys like Thibel, Thibel I wrote about. Um, really like his, his game. I think on the defensive end, he, he just like reminds me of Robert Covington a little bit. Not saying he's ever going to be that caliber of a defender, but he kind of operates in the same way. Um, I think he's just a guy that like, as soon as he gets to the league, you're going to see like good on off splits with him. Like he's just going to make your defense better immediately. He's just so smart, so disruptive, knows where to be. Um, you have to worry a little bit about his lateral quickness, but I think he's a guy like Covington who can just use his hands to make up for every athletic deficiency he has. Um, so I think he'll stick around in the league a long time. Um, I'm a believer in him. I'm trying to think uh, other three and D guys in this range. Um, with with a Thibel, any any concern with them going to largely a zone over the last few years? Like I know sometimes that's an adjustment. He obviously played at the beginning of his tenure there in more of a man to man scheme, but any concern there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the zone absolutely inflated his numbers. There's no doubt about that. He's not going to get to the league. His stock numbers. His stock, yeah, the stock numbers. Um, he's not going to get to the league and like lead the league in steals, lead the league in blocks. It's just not going to happen. Um, and frankly, like that just allowed him to play an area and basically play off the ball uh, most of the time. In the NBA, he's going to be defending pick and rolls, defending isolations. And that's going to test his lateral quickness a lot. Um, and I think it'll be a challenge for him. Like, like I, I can't profile him as like an elite, elite defender at the next level. Um, but I just think he's so smart and so disruptive that he'll he'll find a way to to still make an impact. Okeke. Oh, love me some Chuma Okeke. Yeah, love him. Um, 
I just similar uh, similar sentiment to how I feel about Tybal. Like he's just a really really smart disruptive defender. Um, I really believe in his jump shot. I mean, I look at guys like a Grant Williams for for example. I mean, his his jump shot has to be questioned a little bit as it as it relates to just like NBA range um, and just how rigid it is. But I think Chumo Okeke is a guy that can come in and be a reliable shooter right away. Um, I think if the Sixers draft him, it'd basically be a redshirt year for him. He tore his ACL in March. And just given how Brett Brown is with rookies um, and how cautious the Sixers will probably be with that injury, you might not really see him at all next year. Probably a lot with the Bluecoats if they draft him. Um, I mean, but- look, an injury in March just means he doesn't have to get a nut allergy in in November. So that's fine. That's true. They'd have that taken care of. They, w- they wouldn't have to injure him. He'd come in with one already. Um, but yeah, I really like him. I think, you know, he's a guy that could come in two seasons from now and just like immediately be a quality role player. What's he like defensively? Um, versatile, smart. Um, he's about six, eight, um, defends multiple positions. Um, I mean, I, I I think like in the limited sample size that I saw him defending guards, he held up pretty well. He's got pretty good hands, um, opportunistic in that sense. Um, just like a guy that just plugs right into your defense and is going to make you a little bit better. So sounds like a little more switchable than lockdown, but that's that. I mean, that's the yeah. way that the NBA is trending anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then you touched on him before, but Grant Williams. Really like Grant Williams as well. Um, I think like the, the problem with him is like, I want him to be, and everybody wants him to be like a PJ Tucker. And that's such a unique lane. That's like, we've seen, you know, guys that you want to be that sort of role and they just flame out like a Gershon Yabuselli. Like people just look at the body type and think, Oh sure. He can be that, but there's just so much else that goes into it. And, uh, but I will say, I think Grant has a lot of those qualities, whether it's elite defensive awareness, um, really, really tough, really, really strong, um, really mature kid, just gets it. I think he's going to get to the league and just really embrace his role, do whatever he, he can to make an impact. Um, and I could just, I could just totally see him being sort of a sleeper here and, uh, and just like being a guy, who you think, like, I don't know exactly how it's going to look in the league, but he's going to stick in one way or another. Um, and uh, and and I just think, you know, I, I like to bet on guys with good character, and he certainly is that. All right, so this is a, a little bit of a different profile here. But uh, Ty Jerome from Virginia. And I know you don't like guys with lesser wingspans than height, but here we are again. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little bit lower on Ty Jerome than, than most seem to be. I would not draft him in the first round. Um, I think that with guys who are gonna, who play his sort of role or in his sort of position with like, you know, limited athleticism or, or whatever, like I want them to be like elite off-screen shooters. Um, Ty Jerome is a very, very good shooter. He's not like a JJ Redick. Um, who's going to be flying around screens at 18 miles an hour. Um, I think that – I actually think Ty Jerome can sort of survive on defense. I think he's got pretty good hands and he battles. Um, I just, like – I think Ty Jerome is a guy that you could just get off the scrap heap, like, 
however you want. Like, I could sign, like, Ryan Archidiacono, and he would fill a similar role. Um, I, I just think he's not going to stand out uh, in that way, really, at all. Um, and I just, like I said before, he's got a good chance of being a seventh guy or an eighth guy for a good amount of time in the league, but... I would be. I, they're just more interesting guys in that range. All right, so let's move on. A, any big men, and I know a lot of people want a backup to Embiid. Uh, I think we all do, but I also think it's unlikely to expect anybody drafted this year to be a backup to Embiid in the playoffs next year. Uh, that's that's a very tall task, and you sort of already have one development big in um, Jonah Bolden. So I don't expect them to go this route, uh, at least for anyone to contribute anytime soon but are there any bigs we should be on the lookout for who you could see the Sixers drafting or who would be a good fit with the Sixers so I would just say in general like I would if I'm the Sixers I would not want to draft a guy to try to come in and be my backup center next year um, not just because of how I feel about this draft but just because I I would not be comfortable having a rookie come in and be my backup center to Joel Embiid. I, I just want someone better and more experienced than that. Um, and to make matters worse, I mean, most of the guys, most of the centers in this draft either are going to be taken ahead of the Sixers or a guy like Nick Claxton is probably going to go in between 24 and uh, and 33. So, you know, even though I, I do kind of like Claxton, I um, think he's got a good chance of... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, still young, got some upside, but, you know... That's precisely the reason that I wouldn't draft him if I, if I were the Sixers because young also um, means not ready usually. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, hey, if they love Bruno Fernando from Maryland, if he's there at twenty four, I I like Bruno, um, but I'm I'm just not in love with the idea of him being the Sixers' backup center next year. Um, and then you look at other guys like Calvin Gelly, Bull Bull. It, it's just they're they're a ways away. And if I'm the Sixers, I don't want them to be learning on the fly uh, when I saw what happened in the playoffs last year, this year. All right. Anyone that we haven't mentioned that you think would be a good fit or that you think we should be on the lookout for? Um, let's see. Um, just like a couple guys in the middle of the second round who – Maybe the Sixers reach forward 34, or they're still around at 42. Um, I do like Dylan Windler from Belmont. Uh, really good shooter. Um, just a smart player, high IQ. Um, he's just like, like I said, shooting is just at a premium, and he is elite at it. He's got good size. I think he's going to stick around in the league. Um, I love Admiral Schofield. I, I'm not super confident in his uh, in his NBA career, but I just I just love the kid, love the way he plays. Six um, four, but just built like a like a rugby player. Um, he he uh, he basically played power forward in college, but apparently he played point guard in high school. Um, got some got some ball skills, uh, can shoot a little bit, and just just a really tough kid. Um, a guy a lot of people are talking about is uh, Terrence Davis from Ole Miss. Um, so I was actually like a big Terrence Davis guy for most of the year, even last year. Um, but I liked him when he was like possibly going to go undrafted or like take him with like the 50th pick. I wouldn't love him for like the 35th pick. Um, 
he's just he's a bucket getter, plays like a shot out of a cannon. Um, I want him to be like a miniature Terrence Ross. He's like probably he's six four, maybe a little below. My my whole thing with guys like that is just like if you're like six four or below and you can't play any point guard at all, which Terrence Davis can't, like you have to be really special. Um, I've I have learned my lesson from Malik Monk that uh, if you're that size and you can't play a lick of point guard, like it's going to be tough for you, and you have to be like truly, truly special athlete, truly special shot creator. And I'm not sure that uh, Terrence Davis is that, but I would take a flyer on him if he's there at 42 or 50 or whatever. All right, so here's what I want. I want. First of all, any any European guys, any foreigners to look out for, uh, because the Sixers are always with this many picks, a threat to draft and stash someone, and then be one hot take that you have from this draft that you want to get out there. Wow. Okay, I like that. Um, I don't have a great feel for the international guys. That was that was not my uh, my assignment on the EV hoop staff, but I will say that uh, one guy the Sixers had in, I forget if they had him once or twice, but they had uh, Lucas Simonich and. Um, Forward, kind of like a four or five. Um, shot needs some work. I think he shot like 30% or so from three in recent years, but he's just skilled. Um, sneaky athlete, kind of has like some guard skills to his game. Um, you know, I, I think he's a guy that, again, would take a little bit, but has some upside. Um, I'm not sure if he's someone who teams are looking to stash or not. Um, I think I think he said he has an out that he can, that's workable, each year during his his contract. So I think he's looking to come overseas, but you can sometimes convince people otherwise. But I think he's considered like a fringe first rounder, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Late first, early second. Well, let me ask you this: um, I haven't, I'm not as uh, in tune with the Sixers cap situation as you are. Do you think, like? them getting a draft and stash is something they'd look to do? Like, would that significantly help them? I think they'd look to do it. I don't know if they'd look to do it with the 24th pick. Um, yeah. I feel like there's going to be enough enough guys in that range who should be able to come in and be a contributor somewhat early in, in, in their career on a cheap, cost-controlled contract. So I think 24 might be a little bit too premium of an asset to do that. Uh, so, and especially for a, you know, a center. Like, I've, I'm not sure that's necessarily an organizational priority or a, even a four or five, so I would be a little bit surprised if uh, Smonich was a was 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 the guy they targeted at twenty four. Um, but I guess I guess anything is in play. They could also package picks and move back up in the later first round too. Um, and I do think I haven't watched a whole lot, but I did watch some. And just from that workout, he looks like he has some touch from the corners. Uh, but once you get above the break, it seems like his his mechanics and his consistency fall apart a little bit. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. if maybe he just needs to add a couple more feet. On that shot, but he certainly, like, watching some of his older tape, it looked like he had a little bit of skill with the ball in his hand, a little bit of playmaking, uh, so that's nice. I, I'm somewhat interested. I'm just not sure I would be uh, with the 24th pick. Yeah, totally with well, that. Well, like I said, there's also enough There's also enough sort of physical or defensive-minded wings where you could hope um, maybe Chuma falls or something like that to 33 and you can get get the best of both worlds. Um, I just think they're going to target more of a contributor with that 24th pick, but we'll see. We'll yeah, see. I'm with that. Um, um, and then was there something else you asked or just a hot take? Yeah, your hot take. Your hot take. My hot take, okay. Um, Give it to me. My hot take from this draft is that at least two of the 
first team all rookie next year will be drafted outside the top 20. Um, and I think there are a number of guys who could be that. I think Cam Johnson could be that. I think Kevin Porter Jr. could go to, God, maybe he goes to the Warriors and it's just him and Steph and he just puts up big numbers. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think like they're, I'm not really that high on anybody outside of Zion in the top seven. Um, I just don't, I don't love them. Um, and I think you're going to see guys like somebody, like somebody's going to pull Landry Shamit. Somebody's going to pull up Malcolm Brogdon or whatever. Um, like I said before, I, I like this draft from the, you know, 22 to like 35 range. I mean, hey, maybe Carson Edwards lands on a really bad team next year and pulls like an Alonzo Trier and just puts up big numbers on some team. Um, so I think that's, that's my, uh, that's my hot take is that two guys from the first team all rookie next year will come from outside the top 20. Um, and I think that just sort of speaks to, you know, how, how I feel about the, the later portions of this draft. It does feel, you mentioned at the top of the draft, it does feel like someone like Darius Garland is getting a little bit of a bump because a, it's a, just a bad class overall, but B, it's a really bad point guard class. And he has a little bit of that unknown factor. And the fact that he's being talked about as sort of like a top five-ish pick, I think sort of shows that this is not the not the strongest top ten we've ever seen. Yeah, I 100% agree. You probably love Garland now that I said that. <laughs> no. No, I like him. But I think, like, it, it might be a situation like um like when Chris Dunn in 2016, like, he was the best point yeah. guard in the draft. And so everybody was just like, well, he has to be a top five pick. But But no, I mean, it's just a weak point guard draft. Um, same thing might be happening with Garland. And I, I like Garland. I think he'll be in the league a long time. Maybe like, could be like a Jeff Teague-ish type of player. Um, might be DJ Augustine though. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, a weak class is, is kind of giving that, his mystery box appeal, uh, some serious weight here. Alright, I got one more. And I'm 99% sure this guy's a novelty. But I want you to talk me out of it. Okay. I want a seven-seven guy named Taco in the NBA. <laughs> tell me, Taco Fall is an NBA player. I'm not gonna tell you he's a not. Um, I'll take it. I'll take. It. <laughs> I don't even need. I don't need even need him on the Sixers. But for for the the for pun reasons, please give me give me Taco Fall. I need Taco Fall. I would love it, man. Like if you're playing a team with a center who can't shoot, like. Why not just put Taco Fall right in front of the rim? And, like, or like, imagine if, like, imagine if some team is like, hey, we're gonna play some serious zone next year, and we're just gonna put Taco Fall, like, in front of the rim, and just have him, like, 2.9 out of the paint all the time. Like, I think it could happen. I mean, hey, if Boban is in the league, why can't Taco Fall be in the league? I love seven seven guys. He shot thirty six percent from the free throw line. I don't care. Put him, just put him, like you said, put him near the rim. Uh, we'll figure the rest out. Thank you, Mike, for jumping on. Uh, really appreciate your draft insights, and we will be sure to have you on next week after the Sixers make their selections, and we have actual guys to talk about and not hypotheticals. But once again, thank you. Be sure to follow Mike on Twitter at m o'connor underscore nba and read his stuff at the dot com slash phil. 
Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it.